Good morning. Merry Christmas. Can I say that now? Is that okay? I think that once Thanksgiving is over and then Merry Christmas is allowed, you can put your trees up, decorate your houses. Uh, I still like to wait a few weeks before the Christmas music gets a little too crazy. Um, there's just so many times you can hear one song over and over again. Uh, I'm glad to be here with you this morning as we begin the celebration of Advent. Uh, I hope that over the past week you've had some time to rest, to enjoy some food, to enjoy time with your family and friends. Uh, Pastor Joe is in Indiana enjoying that time with his family. And so I'm very grateful this morning to be up here to share God's Word with you. Uh, I'm also thankful that we're going to kick off a new sermon series. I get to share the beginning of it, and Pastor Joe will preach all throughout the rest of December. And we're going to look at Jesus and Isaiah, and the story of the gospel throughout the book of Isaiah, uh, and we're going to talk a little about that, the prophecies of the coming Christ, and, and what that means for us today, here and now. Uh, and so that's what we're going to be over the next month. Uh, so you can plan for and be excited about. And one of the ways that you could do that as well, and maybe you saw this on the way, maybe someone handed it to you, uh, on the table outside of the door, there is one of these Advent guides. Uh, and this is for you and your family to walk through together. There are three devotionals every week that you can do together as a family to basically focus on Jesus, uh, what he's done, what he's doing uh, and so I, I recommend and suggest that you take one of these and, and do it as a family. Uh, take time out of your life to sit down together, to study scripture, to pray, uh, to be with each other, and to focus on the real reason that we celebrate Christmas. Uh, and so let's pray before we dive into God's Word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to worship together as family, Lord. An opportunity to hear your word, to worship you in song and fellowship and prayer. And so, Father, I ask this morning that you speak to all of us, that you use me and speak through me as I share your word. That as we hear your word this morning, that not only will it challenge us, but it will change our perspective as we grow closer to you. Father, this time of year is or should be all about you. And so, Father, we want this time of year to reflect our life throughout the whole year. And so let's, let that be our focus as we think about Christmas and how every day should be about Christ. So, Father, I ask that you speak to us, speak through us. Uh, pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Uh, now, this is the f my favorite time of year. Uh, there's a lot of traditions that I ha my family has had growing up, and they weren't always about Jesus. Uh, but they were always my favorite thing. I looked forward to getting together at Thanksgiving and at Christmas with my family. I had a very large family. Uh, my mother was one of ten, and so uh, we would come together on Thanksgiving, and we would get in 
my grandparents' garage. That was their like second house, basically. And we would have like 80 people in this garage, and we would celebrate Christmas together. And we'd celebrate Thanksgiving. We got to see my family. And there were just things that you did at this time of year as your family that were really, really exciting. Uh, We, as kids, had those Advent calendars where every day you would pull open the little door and eat the piece of chocolate. And then like three days in, I would have to go to my mom and be like, my Advent calendar is empty. Uh, There was just a lot of exciting things that happened at this time of year. There's a lot of exciting things that we get to do and be part of. There's parades and family gatherings and parties and celebrations. And it's just really, there's something about this time of year that's just better than every other time of year. Uh, and And so I really, really enjoy being able to be with family or friends or at church at this time of year because there's something different about it. Now, it's not because we eat lots of delicious food. It's not because we get to play in the snow. But it's really what takes place around this time. Kind of the attitude in the air. As people search for gifts for loved ones or cook delicious food for parties or decorate their homes with twinkling lights, people can feel their outlook that they hold throughout the year begin to shift. There's something about this time of year that changes how we think. There seems to be a little more joy, a little more fun, even a little more spark. There seems to be more hope, even in every person. See, many people attribute this shift to some extra time away from work. Uh, Usually people get extended vacations throughout this time of the year. Maybe it's more time with family or receiving presents. That's always exciting. Or it's just the, you know, the holiday spirit. There's just something about the holiday spirit. I have no idea what that means, but there's something about it that just changes the season for people. But what I really think is I think there's something different about this time of year. There's just something that changes everyone's perspective. And I think it is that this time of year, we are celebrating what can only be found as the true hope in life. See, in a lost and hurting world, that light, that light of hope shines a little brighter this time of year. There's something about Christmas that is polarizing to people, good or bad. This time of year, it's not about all the things we give or even receive. It's not about the decorations or even our time with our family. See, all those things are great things, and those were things that I used to be excited about this time. That's what I looked forward to when I was young. I looked forward to presents and time with family and delicious food. I looked forward to those kind of things. Like, I look forward to Thanksgiving dinner because you know what you get to eat. See, it's funny because my wife cooked this, the most amazing Christmas dinner I ever had, and she's not in here, so I'm not just telling you funny things. Uh, But I remember sitting down, and she's like, is there anything else that you would like next year for me to cook it? And I was like, you know, it's really weird. Thanksgiving dinner needs taco salad. (laughs) And she's like, what? And it was just something that my family did. We, uh, one aunt always brought taco salad to Thanksgiving dinner, and it was delicious. And I was just like, it just feels wrong without taco salad. And my wife's response was, 
Whenever I cook Thanksgiving, there never will be taco salad. Uh, and so I was like, I'll just make it on the side, I guess. Uh, but there's something about this time of year that there's some expectation of something. Whether it's getting gifts or being with family. And it's not about those things. It's about the hope that we find in this time of year. Now, maybe you've seen this saying on a greedy card or heard it sung in a repetitive song, but have you ever really thought about the little cliche, Jesus is the reason for the season? Now, it seems trite and overused, but could you honestly boil the Christmas season down to any more of a simple truth than that? Jesus is the reason for the season. See, people's emotions can range from joy and hope to frustration and loneliness. And as people trudge through frustration, they could see the joy and hope all around them. You know, when people are sad, they can drive around and see lights and begin to think, okay, what's that about? You know, this time of year it gets dark about 430 And you can go out and all kinds of lights are all over. And in the midst of the darkness, they begin to see this light and things change. But they look for hope in gifts and songs and food and family, hoping that one of those things will fill them up, will give them hope and joy that lasts beyond December 25th. However, unless they are finding Christ in the midst of this season, they are missing hope. That hope didn't just start the night Christ was born. That hope was ignited and started hundreds of years even before his birth. Now, I want you to think about that. Before Christ was even born, so even past 2,000 years ago, is where we will start today in our sermon. And I want to share a little about that, of where Israel was. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 11 this morning. But I want to set the stage for the prophecy that Isaiah is about to deliver to the people. Uh, Israel was not at peace. The promises that are come are not given to a people that are trusting God or devoted to his teaching or living according to his law. Israel was not following God. Isaiah came to the southern kingdom of Israel, to Judah, to share this prophecy with them in the midst of a war-toward nation. In a future that held captivity in Babylon, it was a scary time to live in Israel. Assyria was there, and they were attacking Israel, and Israel was in the midst of an ugly war, and they weren't winning. Assyria was there, destroying them. See, years before Israel, or primarily Judah, had become a military power, a great nation, And instead of focusing their eyes on God, they began to focus on their own power and their own mobility. They looked inwards at themselves and said, hey, look how awesome we are. They started turning their eyes to the world and began to forsake God and what he called them to. In the midst of this, Israel's kings were worshiping other gods, living outside the commandments that God had clearly laid out for them. Assyria bearing down to destroy them, and leaders who were taking them away from God, who could save them? They had to feel if the world was collapsing around them. Everything was against them. They had become this mighty nation, and they were all about how strong they were. 
And all of a sudden, Assyria shows up. And they were the biggest, baddest dudes in the whole land. And they were going to kill Israel. And so there was the world that Israel had built up around themselves. Everything that was important to them began to collapse around them. And this is the uh, time that Isaiah came to them to share. And so I'm going to share a little in chapter 10. I'm not going to specifically point it out to you, but I want to share a little of this to give you an idea of where we are at. Isaiah's prophecy isn't one of condemnation and destruction for God's people, though. Maybe God should have destroyed Israel at this point. But instead, God offers the wicked, sinful nation grace and hope. See, in the midst of all their turmoil, in their midst of saying, you know what, God, we got this under control. Oh, wait, we're in trouble. God doesn't come in and say, hey, I'm just going to let Assyria destroy you. He comes in and says, hey, I've got something better for you. Not only will he remove the Assyrian army, but he promises to make them so few that a child could count them. Assyrian had the largest nation in the world at that time. Now, I want you to think about this. Josiah can count, kind of. Uh, he's learned one, two, three. Sometimes it's two, three, one, or three, two, one, or one, three, and two somehow gets lost in translation. Uh, but he can count to three. And I think that's the idea here. The greatest nation in the world is coming to attack God's people, and God says, I'm going to wipe them so thin that a little child can count how many of them there are. And this is a people that the nation as a whole is rejecting him. But in the midst of that people, there is a remnant of people that believe in God and what he's been doing. And God says, I trust in those people, and I know they love me. See, God doesn't just end with a promise, promise of deliverance from their current situation. See, maybe they expect for God to come in and say, hey, I see Assyria is attacking you. I will take care of Assyria, and then let's move on. No, he comes in with a future for them. Not just a hope of survival in the moment. Isaiah is looking at them and inviting them back into the presence of a holy God. Inviting them to remember the promises and again believe in who he is. He is offering not only hope for that moment, but for their future, for their children, and most importantly, for their eternity. To the remnant, to the, those few that still believe in God and followed him, God is offering hope unending. See, if you're a believer at some point, you've turned away from the world, you've surrendered your life to Christ, you've acknowledged your sin and committed living God's living by following God's plan. You have done that at some point if you believe in Jesus Christ. Now, if you've made that commitment, you've also most likely at some point sinned again. You took your eyes off Christ. You rejoiced in your own strength. You allowed your heart to be captivated by other priorities. You became Israel. I have, at times in my life, been Israel. I think the cool part about the Old Testament is we get to see God's grace and love poured out on a people that constantly turn their back on him. Hey, things are going good in the desert. Oh, I'm kind of hungry today. God, where are you at? That's how Israel lived. 
hey, life is good. Why are we at war? God, where you at? Hey, I just had one dude beat 5,000. What, what are you talking about? Uh, God, where you at? I'm hungry again. And I think that's how we live life sometimes too. I know that there have been times in my life where things are going good and I'm so focused on God and then there becomes a point of hardship and I'm like, hey, where'd God go? And God's like, hey, you forgot about me, not the other way around. And this is where Israel is at and I think oftentimes even followers of Christ get into this position and I think that's the key of the Old Testament other than seeing who God is, is hey, we can relate to the Israelite people because that's how life looks like sometimes. Life is going good and God is present and life is hard and sometimes we forget about it. Churches for people that are hurting and in pain and that love God, they're for all kinds of people. It's not the perfect people that should be here. Read our sign. We want imperfect people here because we all are imperfect. And we are like Israel. Now this passage, God renews His promises again and His vows to preserve the remnant. Remember, they're supposed to be a great nation, a great people. Promises of being God's people. They're like a light beam. Whenever I'm overwhelmed in my faith, I can look at Christ and His promises or look at God and His promises throughout Scripture and say, all right, I know this is tough, but look what God promises for me. He's promising more than we can really imagine if we surrender our lives to Him. If Israel is really adamant about surrendering to God, they will get more than what's promised to them. The light that comes into the world in this next chapter, in chapter 11, shines brightest in the midst of our darkest moments. So read, we're just going to go through a little here. We're just going to start with verse 1. Uh, chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, that's kind of a weird sentence. I think if you just sat down and pulled open your Bible and started reading prophecies, you'd be really confused. Uh, but no matter what play, takes place throughout this world, the world is ruled by sin. But in the midst of that sin, there is always hope. See, the stump of Jesse was all that was left of this vast forest that was considered Israel. See, if you look back at 33 and 34 from chapter 10, God comes through and he basically levels Israel. See, they were a nation that was supposed to be following God that was so full of sin that they had turned to other gods, and God comes through and basically cuts them down. No trees blowing in the wind, no animals moving, no life. The world of Israel was dead. The infestation of sin was taken out of Israel. Now here's the cool thing from that. The remains of the stump, out of this one stump in the middle of this forest that was considered Israel, will grow a branch. A single branch will grow out. And it's not just any stump. It comes from a royal lineage. If you read Matthew the first chapter, you can see the genealogy of Christ. Jesse is the father of David, a man after God's own heart, king of Israel. And this is, this is the line and lineage that this root or this branch is going to grow from. And it's a, a set of roots that go all the way back 
to creation. To when God created it. And here's the cool part. They use in Isaiah chapter 4, they use this idea of a branch to symbolize the coming of the Messiah. The branch is the Messiah. And so out of, out of all of this that was Israel, and out of this great sinning nation, in the midst of it, when it's all been wiped clean, there is hope. Whatever turmoil was consuming Israel at the time, in the midst of that grows hope. Something to focus on, something to look at. You know, you plant a forest and one tree starts to grow. That's exciting things. And out of that will produce fruit. And so the branch will come and grow and begin to produce fruit. And it will begin to do things and change us. And the cool thing is, if you read John chapter 15, and Jesus talks about being the vine and the branches, this happens or is supposed to happen in our own lives. When sin is overwhelming us or bearing down on us, Jesus says, hey, let God come in and basically wipe it away from your life and cut out those branches and burn them. See, sin is a serious issue because it keeps us from a holy God. But in the midst of that, a loving God says, hey, there is hope in the future, and it's the form of this Messiah, this branch, and he is coming And he's going to come from the line of Jesse and David all the way back to the forefathers of Israel. All right, we're going to read 2 to 5 for you. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes on what his ears hear. But with righteousness they shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek on the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, you can really break this section of verses down into two parts. You can look at uh, verse 2. And this is kind of the defining attributes of this branch. This is what he should look like. And then 3, 4, and 5 are basically practical application of this is what it's actually going to be doing. So Christ is going to come in, this Messiah is going to come in, and this is these seven things are what he's going to look like. And then 3, 4, and 5 are like, this is what it will actually practically do. See, the Messiah or branch, will be anointed by the Spirit of God. Now, Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 4, about God anointing him for his work. But what does that anointing look like? What will the Messiah bring to the table? See, since the foundation of Israel, the nation begged God for a human leader. They came to God and said, hey, God, give us Give us a king or, 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 or something, because every nation around us has all these kings and emperors and things like that, and we want to be like them. And God constantly said, hey, I don't want you to be like them. You don't need that. And finally, finally God gave them a man, and they, they wanted that person that could follow as a nation. They wanted that person that could see, lead them into battle and protect them and guide them. 
And so for years, God gave them men to follow, each with sinful downfalls. Saul with his pride, David with his lust, Solomon with his wealth, and on and on the list could go, and it frankly just gets worse. These mighty kings and leaders that the nation of Israel wanted and that God allowed them to have just delve deeper into sin and away from God. How would this promised leader, how would this branch, this Messiah look different? This leader would be unlike anything that they would ever or we would ever expect. See, he isn't described as a powerful speaker or a courageous fighter. He isn't persuasive or overly confident. Instead, his first and main qualification is his anointment by God. You know, he would have wisdom and understanding. He would have discernment to handle situations and understand the people he's dealing with. See, leaders oftentimes look at the big picture. And God is saying, this this branch, this Messiah that's coming will know you on a personal level and be able to understand and help you and guide you and lead you. He'll understand the situations. Now, it's not what you expect. See, Israel, even when Jesus came, still wanted a mighty war leader. They wanted to be the strongest, the most powerful, the greatest nation on earth. And the reality is they were if they were listening to what God was saying to them. The leader will know the hearts of his people and how to help them. See, God knows that we need help and guidance in this world. And he knows that each one of us is different and act different. And the reality is that a personal relationship with Jesus allows him to teach and guide us. See, this leader was going to be greater than any other leader that walked the face of the earth and was going to be able to give to his followers something greater than any leader had ever had. But still, in the midst of that, even when Christ is born, they missed out on some of it. So Jesus also has wisdom and understanding on a personal level to assess and guide. He has the counsel and power to do what must be done. See, our human leaders make promises and guarantees all the time. Uh, we have presidential debates, and sometimes it's hard to tell how many of their statements are actually lies. Uh, it's not two truths and a lie with presidential candidates. It's 1,000 lies and a truth. Uh, see if you can pick the one out of it. And that wasn't what this leader was going to be like. These weren't shallow promises that he couldn't come through on. See, this leader would have the power to stand up and back what he was going to do. He was, had the knowledge to bring in the actions and adamantly provide and do what he promised. Christ stands in stark contrast to all the leaders that ever walked the face of this earth. Instead of empty promises, Isaiah shows that he will bestow righteous rulings with complete power to follow them up. When we need provision, he will provide. When life is hard, he will guide. He is more capable than any king, judge, or president ever could or would be. See, the last qualification or attribute of this coming leader is the deep knowledge and fear of the Lord. And I think beyond anointing of this leader, this is the most important one because what this does 
is this shows that the, this leader have, will have an intimate relationship with God the Father. To have a deep knowledge of God, there must be an intimate relationship with Him. Meaning this person will know of God's will and His heart and what He's doing and how He's leading the people and will understand all the commandments that were given to this nation. He will have the knowledge of that. A deep connection that as He bears fruit will allow us to also have. See, this leader would not be another of Israel's flawed kings. He wouldn't even be a king like David, a man after God's own heart. Not even like David. Better than David, who is considered a man after God's own heart. See, each of these human leaders dealt with one common theme and issue in their relationship with God, and it was sin. They could never be completely connected completely knowing of him because they were flawed. And sin doesn't allow us into the presence of a holy and perfect God. See, this leader was something different. He would have intimate knowledge and fear. Now, I think oftentimes when we hear fear God or fear the Lord or having a healthy fear of the Lord, I think there's oftentimes this picture of like being terrified of God. Now, I think that is a fine, accurate assessment. Uh, there is a right reason to actually be physically afraid of God because he has power that we can't understand. Uh, he can speak into existence stars, and so I think a healthy fear of that is very reasonable. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about understanding who God is and obeying and honoring him. That's the kind of fear that this leader would have. And I want you to think about that kind of fear because this is what it's talking about. This is talking about when Jesus is standing in the garden and he's saying to God, if there's any other way, can we do that? But I know that I am willing to follow you, God. See, Jesus was willing to go all the way and do everything that was required of him because of his knowledge and fear of the Lord. This leader, Isaiah, promises will have the Spirit of the Lord resting and dwelling within him. Something only the perfect Son of God could have. Jesus would serve as a bridge, allowing us to have a relationship with God that we could truly understand who God was, what he was asking of us, and what he was doing in our own lives. This fruit in verse 1 that that's part of the product of having a relationship with this Messiah. In Romans, Paul talks about grafting branches into the vine of Israel. See, this branch is going to grow up, and Jesus is going to begin to call people to him. And when they come, they're going to be grafted in this branch, which means we're going to be fed and produce fruit from Jesus. Watching our perfect Savior live with fear and respect for His Father gives us the ultimate picture of what a perfect relationship with God should be like. The relationship between the Son of God and the Holy Father is what our relationship with God the Father should look like. And 
because of what Jesus is doing and what Isaiah is talking about, that is possible for us. See, this leader, this branch, this Messiah would be like none the world has ever known or will ever know again until he returns. See, he would bring a connection with God that is greater than David or any of Israel's forefathers had. He would know how to rule in a way no leader has ever ruled before. He would ultimately show the people what it meant to walk alongside of God because he had the spirit of perfection, because the spirit would ultimately bring world peace. See, he knew and had a connection that was unlike anything that had ever been seen. And this is something that Israel would know well because Israel's forefathers got to have direct conversations with God. And this Messiah would have a greater connection than that. And he would be able to pass out fruit and he would be able to teach and lead and guide a certain way. And like I said, there was an expectation in Israel that this leader would basically come in. I thought that they think they thought he'd come in on a horseback with a giant sword and basically cleave nations out of his way. And what's he do? He comes in and he heals the sick and the dying and the lepers, the people that the world hated. He comes in and says, hey, I'm all about you. I'm all about everyone. I want everyone to be part of this nation. I want everyone to be grafted into this this branch. I want everyone to be part of what God is doing. See, that's what Jesus came into the world for. And this is what Isaiah is telling the people of Israel. They're like, someone is coming. Like, yes, you are getting killed by Assyria, and God is going to take care of that. But in the midst of that, the future is brighter than ever. Now, up until this point, Isaiah has been prophesying or sharing with them about the coming of Christ, his first coming. Uh, The reason we celebrate Christmas is Christ came into the world to die on the cross. Now there's going to be a huge shift here. Uh, Let's read read with me 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together... And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the holes of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They should not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. See, up into this first part, like I said, we are talking about the coming of Christ for the first time. But now Isaiah makes a drastic shift in a different direction. He begins to speak of hope beyond the coming of Christ. See, Isaiah begins to address the second coming And the hope that we still carry, the hope that I was talking about in the beginning when I said there's something about Christmas that just gets people ignited. Whether it's frustration towards Christians or all the holiday celebrations or it's truly focusing on God, there's something in it. And it's because that Isaiah is standing here 
hundreds of years before Christ and saying, hey, not only is he going to come, he's going to come again, and there's going to be world peace. And not world peace like our governments and the world are trying to establish where everyone's just a little nicer to each other. This is totally on a different scale. There is coming a glorious day when Christ will reign and the world will look like these verses. Now, I want you to think about that because our world doesn't look anything like this picture at all. I don't know if you know anyone that has sheep, but if they were locked in a sheep pen and you asked them if you could throw your wolf in the midst of that, I'm pretty sure they would say no. And yet, Isaiah is saying the wolf shall dwell with the lamb that they would spend time together, that life would be like that for them. See, nature is warring against itself. Lions are destroying weaker animals for food. You know, I'm not quite ready to let Josiah stick his hand in the middle of a snake's hole because I know the consequences of that action. That doesn't even mention the brokenness of depravity of humanity where men and women are just killing each other. The orphans, the widows, the homeless, the broken are seemingly everywhere. The peace in this passage just seems impossible. That nature itself would be in such perfect alignment that one of the fiercest animals could sit down with the most tame. I would contend that this kind of peace is completely impossible for us to achieve. No matter how hard we work, no matter what government rules are set or regulations throughout the world, that this type of peace will never happen because of us. See, back in the garden, there was a specific order of things. Uh, This is what the garden most likely looked like. Animals were just roaming around together. There was no fear of being eaten by the bigger, the stronger. But the reality is that since that time in the garden, our world has been torn asunder and is wrecked and demolished by sin. And so we stand here and reading, and Isaiah is saying, there is going to be such great peace in the world that the creation order, the way that God created it, everything is going to return to that. That you would be able to walk a wolf in the midst of lambs and there wouldn't be a problem see our hearts long for peace there's something in us that desires a world like this where everything's good and people are nice and there's no war or suffering and the reality is that almost 3,000 years ago Isaiah stood before the people of Israel and said hey this peace is coming This Messiah, this branch, he's going to bring it into the world. And it's going to look like this. And that's the hope that we want to focus on. And here's the cool part about it and why we can focus on. See, we're going to spend this whole month talking about Jesus coming into this world to give his life for us. And all of that was already prophesied. You can go back to Isaiah and what Joe preaches on for the next four weeks, and you can see all the truths that God had already stated come true. So when Isaiah stands here and says, God says that there's going to be a time when there is world peace, world peace is coming. 
It's not going to be made by man. It's going to be made because Jesus is the reason. See, the image here is so contrary to anything we've ever seen in life. Uh, I have a series of DVDs uh, called Planet Earth, and maybe some of you have seen it. But it's like one of the coolest, it's a BBC documentary, and it's one of the coolest things. They go all over the world, and they got really fancy equipment that they could like watch animals from miles away up close and not get anywhere near them. So they could see animals in its natural habitat. And sometimes in the videos, what you see is a lion running down a gazelle or bears eating seals or penguins. And you see all these kind of things, and that's not the way it was meant to be. See, that's what we see the world sees as natural, but contrary to that, God is saying there is going to be peace to the point where all the animals are falling in line once again. This passage, even though it's hard to imagine, feels right. This feels like it should be. When there's angst with problems and you have friction between you and someone else and you're like, this isn't how life should be. The reality is that sin has ravaged this world and that's not what life is supposed to look like. See, this is a promise we have to remember. There is hope in a sin-ravaged reality. It's not always going to be this way. One day, Christ returns, and he will bring peace that invades every nook and cranny of this world. See, right now, God is working and preparing the remnant. The remnant we talked about in Isaiah chapter 10. See, that's us. That's all the millions of people throughout the world that believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. He's preparing their hearts and minds for the second coming of Christ. And he's asking us to not only follow him, but to share that hope with those around us. See, he wants to bring a bright light, screaming and shouting this hope as often as we can to a deaf and callous world. He wants us to long for this peaceful existence and long for others to join us in it. He wants us to continue to dwell in the hope of Christ's return. See, these passages are all about the peace that Christ's second return is going to bring when he comes to reign. And the cool part, like I said, is you can see all of these prophetic messages, messages that God sent to people to share with Israel to ultimately share with the whole world. And we can see the majority of them that have already taken place, and we can know that God's promises are true. See, he promises that a relationship with Jesus Christ will save us from our sin. He promises that Jesus is coming back, and when he does, the world is going to be perfect. I want to end with this, and this isn't on your notes, but I'm going to read 10, 11, and 12. In that day, the root of Jesse, who, stand, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand out yet a second time to recover the remnant, the remains of the people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea.
He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. I want to share a little story with you. Something that you all know, at least somewhat. But when Francis Scott Key wrote the national anthem, he was a prisoner on board the British, a British ship during the War of 1812. And when the enemy ship was firing on Fort McHenry, he was riding what he could see. And the rockets, red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. See, that's the position that we are believers are in now. The kingdom has been established. The branch has already come and Christ has already done his work. The flag has been planted. And no matter what war is raging around us in your life or the lives around your loved ones, the flag of Christ will never fall even though it's opposed. No matter what bombs are going off around it, your faith, your trust, your hope in Christ, Christ will never fall. This peace is coming. We have a flag in Jesus. And see, that's, that, this is why this time is my favorite time of the year. And I want to share a story with you. This is a, there will be a movie on TV throughout this month, probably too many times. Uh, but you probably are, all have seen it at least once. And if you haven't, you should go watch it. But it's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And, and the reality is that we should be like the Whoville people. Because the, the Grinch thinks that the Whoville people are happy and excited and hopeful because they have all of these things. And so what happens is he comes down the mountain and he steals all of their stuff, everything they have. And so when they wake up to celebrate Christmas and they have nothing, they're going to be just as sad as he is. And so what happens is all of a sudden he starts to hear singing. And there's a celebration, there's hope in the village not because they had stuff, because there's something greater out there. See, maybe they're celebrating because they have each other, but the reality is it doesn't matter about all of the trappings and the things surrounding Christmas. We have a hope that Christ is going to return and that we will have peace forever. So if you watch that movie, I want you to think about that. Our celebration of Christ is a beacon of light to those around us. Our actions at Christmas times share Jesus. It draws people near to him and allow them to see God. The signal is the cross. He doesn't win us with human swagger or intimidation, not even being with cool, but Christ wins people over with his dying love. The power of his love accomplishes what no other leader in history could ever do. Does this passage change your perspective on Christ and Christmas? Does a 3,000-year-old prophecy excite you because Christ is returning? As you decorate your trees or watch movies or celebrate with your family, I want you to remember that we have a perfect God that is ultimately bringing peace to this world. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's coming. Jesus said this in John 12, 32. 
And when I am lifted up from earth, I will draw all people to myself. See, I love this time of year because I think no matter where people are at in life, they are drawn to Christ because of it. They might not think about it, or they might get frustrated about it and be like, Christmas is dumb, there's no God. But it makes them begin to process that God is out there, and they begin to think about it. And there's something about this time of season, as we see lights pop up in the darkness, that there is hope and excitement. And we should carry that excitement on, not only now, but throughout our lives. So let this time of year be a time when we draw near to Christ, and we draw people near to him as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share your word. But most importantly, Lord, I thank you for the real reason of this season. I thank you that Jesus Christ came into this world as a baby, that he stepped down from heaven, that he gave up his rightful place in the sight of God to give his life to die on the cross, to, to take our sins. For those that believe in him should have hope, hope eternal, because peace is coming. Christ came, and he's returning. And so we should be excited. Father, allow this time of year to be a time of celebration, of excitement, of joy, because we have unending hope in what Jesus has done. And so, Father, I thank you for all that you have done through Jesus for us. Uh, let, let this time be just a great celebration of you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.